special bonus episode of The Virtual Couch. I'm your host, Tony Overbay. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, certified mindful habit coach, writer, speaker, husband, father of four, ultra marathon runner, and creator of The Path Back, an online pornography addiction recovery program that is helping people reclaim their lives from pornography addiction. If you or anyone that you know is struggling with pornography addiction, please point them to pathbackrecovery.com. There you can download a short ebook that describes five common mistakes that people make when trying to overcome pornography addiction. Again, that is pathbackrecovery.com. All right, this bonus episode came about because a few weeks ago, I was a guest on another podcast. It's called The Joyful Soul Project. I was interviewed by a wonderful woman named Heidi Linford for her podcast, and she asked me to talk about the impact of pornography addiction on marriages, um, how to heal, advice that I would give spouses who discovered that their partners have been struggling with addiction, and it just, I felt like it was one of those conversations where she just brought out the best in me and she asked me questions about my background. And so I go into a little bit more about that and uh, about getting into this career. I talked about betrayal trauma and that's where I um, first kind of mentioned some of the, the concepts around the levels of intimacy that, uh, that I then recorded a podcast about. And so I just want to make that content available. Ironically, even though I talk about the path back recovery at the beginning of every podcast, I actually do get a lot of feedback of people that want to hear more um, about what to do with addiction and uh, is there hope and what do you do as a spouse and that sort of thing. So I tried to cover a lot of that in Heidi's podcast. And so I just wanted to make that available. So without any further ado, except for please uh, stop by TonyOverbay.com, sign up to find out more about upcoming programs and and books and appearances and that sort of thing that are happening. And also if you stop by uh, Virtual Couch on Instagram at Virtual Couch trying to do a little bit more there. And I also talked a little bit in the last episode about um, all those videos typically, well, they do, they go up to a YouTube channel. And so actually this one is, the one with Heidi and I talking is on the Virtual Couch YouTube channel. So I would love for you to check that out, subscribe, all that uh, fun stuff. So um, thanks again for all the support. And uh, at the end of this, you will hear the wonderful, talented Aurora Florence with the song, It's Wonderful. I will see you next time on the Virtual Couch. Okay, great. So I am here with Tony Overbay. Tony, can you give us an introduction yeah, to you? you Tell us who you are and it is that you do. Yeah. So, uh, and I'm noticing on the screen that we're recording, it's coming up with Anthony Overbay. And I think that's what, uh, if you go, uh, um, but it's Tony, I go by Tony. I do. I always wanted to do that thing where, um, you know, people uh, that I didn't know called me Anthony and then my friends call me Tony, but I kind of couldn't get used to that. Um, so uh, completely, um, uh, story that is not applicable, but yeah, so I'm Tony Overbay. I'm a marriage and family therapist. And, um, so as far as the background goes, I, I'm actually a very old man. So I'm pushing 49, uh, hard to tell, I think with the bald part, but, uh, so I, and I just say that because I've been married for 28 years, I think it'll be 28 in a week. Um, I have, uh, four kids. I married my high school sweetheart, that whole wonderful story. And, uh, but I started out in, in, uh, high tech. So computer software, and that was one of those things where I got a degree and I actually wanted to pursue some sort of career in psychology in college. But uh, it was one of those things where I had a, a teacher, a professor, and I don't remember him. So it isn't like I'm going to out him and say, darn you, professor, whatever. But uh, where he said, you know, uh, it can be challenging to get a career in psychology or if you don't want to teach or I forget what he said. But to me, it was just like, oh, darn it, I'll do something else. And so, but I was always fascinated by people. And I think a lot of therapists and and life coaches say that they were that person that people would always come to and, 
you know, ask questions. I don't know if that was your experience as well growing up, if you were the person people turned to. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Right. So I love that. But then I found myself in a, in a, in a computer software career and, um, and it was fine, but it just wasn't scratching the itch. You know, I felt like I was just selling widgets. People don't usually go to the tech guy. Yeah, no, they don't. And the funny part was, so I did, I did work for a company where I got to do presentations all over the world. And so then I found those times to, I started working in all kinds of gimmicks and gags and jokes and, you know, and it was like, oh yeah, by the way, we also have software, you know? So I just, I felt like that wasn't quite the, maybe the right place to be. And no, and I, and I really did feel, and I, I've never told this story. I remember one time we were at a trade show and there was like this dock worker that was helping us unload all of our stuff about our booth. And, uh, and, and my, some of the guys I worked with knew that a lot of people would open up to me and almost like, so they said, okay, go see what you can kind of get out of that guy, you know? And so I go over, Hey, you know what I'm, I'm, thanks for helping us move the stuff. Tell me about yourself. And, and so I I was able to come back about 10 minutes later and I was saying, okay, he's, you know, he's on his second marriage. Things a little bit rocky. He just got a tattoo that symbolizes this. And, and, you know, they were just like, Whoa, you know, and I just thought, all right, what am I doing here in this uh, (laughs) software industry? Um, but then I really did. I kind of felt a, a, a calling to, okay, I, I always felt like, okay, I should go back and get my master's in counseling. And at that point, I had four little kids and I had been in this working in that industry for about a decade. And, and I was, I know your, uh, your audience will appreciate this. I think I was teaching early morning seminary. And, you know, I just felt like I had a lot on my plate, but then I also recognized not getting any younger and I can go ahead and start going back to school and two years is going to pass at some point and I'll either have my master's or I won't. So then once I got into the uh, master's program in marriage and family therapy, all of a sudden I realized, oh, so if you actually like what you're studying, then school is kind of fun, you know? And so then it was a whole different experience. I read the textbooks, which I had never really done before, um, did homework, all those things. And then I just found like, okay, this is, this is my passion. But I felt, I felt specifically called to talk to men um, I wanted to work with men. I wanted to help them become better husbands and fathers and that sort of thing. And I know I've maybe said this before on uh, on my own podcast, but as I was in my grad school program and I would say that and I was ready to have everyone go, oh my gosh, what a noble cause. Um, but then people would kind of chuckle and I never really thought, well, I don't think it was very funny. But then I found out that it's because when I got out in the world of counseling, not a lot of guys come to counseling. So it was a noble cause, but a bit uh, maybe fruitless at, at first. And then, yeah, yeah, exactly. It was. And and then I, so then, you know, so I started working with all kinds of clients. I was really working part-time at the time. I still um, owned a a computer hardware company and that's the whole thing. You know, I love the, I love the talking with people and communicating and, and, and seeing how they work. But then I was in this industry of just, uh, I don't know, pieces and parts and, you know, technology. And so, um, you know, I just, I just found myself wanting to do more and more therapy. And I was really just doing therapy as more of this passion. Um, I was working for, uh, my church at, in, at, uh, LDS family services at the time and seeing just a handful of clients. And, but I just kept, okay, I want to do more of that and more of that. And so then, uh, working with men, I started then getting trained specifically in the areas of primarily pornography addiction, uh, compulsive sexual behavior, uh, some things like faith journeys, those sort of things. But then I started to get that population, men. So it's kind of funny that now, I don't know, a decade plus later and a thousand guys later working on pornography addiction and compulsive sexual behavior, uh, that wasn't the goal. The goal is just to work with guys. But now I realize that, that this area does help them become better husbands and fathers and, you know, just more connected. So, you know, I guess it all kind of 
um, came to a head. And then I found this area that I really enjoy, but, and I know I'm just, I'm going on and on here, but, uh, then I found that the more men I worked with, the, the more I found out that the, you know, the pornography addiction was maybe the thing that I was the presenting, um, issue that brought him in the room, but I'm finding that it was more of for, you know, kind of like a coping mechanism for not feeling like they were, had a fulfilled life that they weren't as connected to their partners or they weren't connected with their kids or they didn't like their job or they, um, they weren't in the shape that they wanted to be, or they weren't good in their faith. And so all of these things led them to feel uncomfortable. And when, you know, they were so used to this, when I don't feel good about myself, then I want to detach or check out. And then the siren song of pornography that maybe they've been involved in since the time they were a kid. And now there's like these, you know, deep neuro pathways kind of uh, cut in there and then they turn to the addiction. And so then the addiction brings with it the feel good chemicals and the rush. So then anytime now they, you know, this, the brain would tell them if you're not feeling good about something, Hey, you know, we got something you can do over here, but then it's this vicious cycle. So, boy, that's a long introduction, right? <laughs> That's that's great. So there you go. That's who I am. It's great to get to know more about you. And I just I love your story. I love how you um, found your passion and you you worked hard to get it done. And I love the work that you're doing. And you are helping so many people with such a major issue that is affecting families. No, I appreciate it. Yeah, and it's not a fun one to talk about. I mean, you know, a few years ago, I still feel like well, we we transitioned from that if, if the kids ever see pornography, right, then we'll deal with it. Now it's like, oh no, not just when, but it's like, how often are you? When's the last time you saw it? And we need to talk about it. And this really will date me. But, uh, I remember I had this, these firesides and fifth Sunday lessons. I would, I was getting asked to do a lot and I would go in there and Harry Potter was big at the time, which it's got, it's making a comeback 20 year anniversary. Right. But I would go in there and, you know, you know, you're not supposed to say Voldemort. And then, uh, um, cause that would give him power. And, and I was like, okay, no, we need to talk about pornography. And I remember one time that didn't go over well, where I was like, all right, everybody say pornography, you know? And it was like that, that wasn't very comfortable. Um, so I kind of took that part out, but the Voldemort part stayed and it was like, we need to be talking about it more. And especially as parents, it needs to be the, it needs to be the norm. My kids, you know, almost every family night, it's like, are we doing another pornography lesson? I'm like, no, no, we're not. But since you brought it up, you know, when's the last time you saw it? you know, but we want it to be able to, to be something we talk about. We really do. Yeah. Yes. So thank you. I appreciate that you're talking about it and helping us that, you know, maybe don't have as much knowledge about it as you do yeah. helping us be more comfortable, more comfortable talking about it. So I appreciate that. So thank you. Yeah. So that, that leads us right into our first question. So why is pornography such a big issue? Like what, what long-term effects are you seeing as you work with people that struggle yeah. with pornography? You know, I think, uh, and maybe if we, if I'm off, if I go way off on a tangent, you can kind of say, all right, let's say get back to where we were, where the question was, but I feel like setting the stage a bit with for the last decade, I do feel like it was more of the, maybe the religious community that was hammering the drum of pornography is a bad thing. And I feel like over the last year or two now, we've got enough data that backs up that even in the non-religious setting, that it's a bad thing. I mean, it's over half of all divorces now have a component of pornography addiction or compulsive sexual behavior. Or, you know, now that we learn more about the way that the brain works and we, we just know that. So now here I transition into the, the answer is, I mean, it, it you know, it, it definitely leads to a lack of connection. I mean, you're not as authentic or there or present with your partner. And, uh, and I always use this phrase and it maybe sounds dramatic, but it does warp one's view of sexuality. Um, because when, you know, when people, and I'll hear people say, 
okay, but, but isn't it good if it, if it helps get things going, you know, in the bedroom or whatever. And I'm like, no, then that means that there's a lack of connection there. Let's work on that. But, but I realized part of what's hard about that is it carries, you know, if we're talking about anything that has to do with pornography or even sexuality, then here comes the guilt and the shame. And, and then we feel uncomfortable talking about these things. And so, um, and ironically, that is the, the part that leads to um, people turning to pornography is then they feel like if they're not connected with their partner, even if they're not as intimate as they want to be, instead of having an uncomfortable conversation, which I will tell you down the road, go, you know, if you get help, go see a therapist, that sort of thing. It ends up not being an uncomfortable conversation. You get to a point where you can talk about anything with your partner. That's our goal. Because if not, then we think, okay, man, I want to say something, but I know it's not going to go well, or I feel like, uh, you know, I'm too embarrassed or ashamed. And then here comes the guilt and the shame, which then leads to isolation. And now we get right back into that. I feel uncomfortable. And here comes the brain saying, Hey, I got something that, you know, you can do that will take your mind off of this uncomfortable feeling. So that just keeps this addiction cycle going. So the, why is it an issue? You know, because it just causes people to detach. Um, it causes a, a tremendous amount of shame and, uh, and then it just, and it can lead to some really um, serious issues down the road and especially in relationships. I know we want to get to that point, but when there is that concept of betrayal or there is a uh, disclosure or someone is caught and then kind of where that leads. So I don't know. I don't know if that 10 minute answer answered the question or not. Um, I hope <laughs> no, that's, so. That's perfect. Thank you. Okay, good. Perfect. Um, so you mentioned that there's starting to be more scientific mm-hmm. research. Yeah. Can you talk about that specifically, like what effect that it's having on the brain. Yeah, this is the part that gets really interesting. And I love, I pulled up uh, one of the studies I, and I did a whole podcast episode on, on this, actually this and a couple of studies on, um, on my podcast, but, and I love how it's got the clickbait heading, you know, it's Harvard scientist reveals the shocking impact of watching porn, you know, the kind of the clickbait thing. Right. Um, yes. But it's a guy named Kevin Majerus and he's a psychiatrist uh, specializing in, in cognitive behavioral therapy at Harvard medical school well-vetted person, but I, but I want to give him credit because this is, he, he writes it as this, um, says scientists have discovered, actually, I'm about to tell a story, but then we're going to get to the brain part. Okay. So, uh, scientists have discovered that if you place a male rat in a cage with a receptive female, they will mate. Um, but once done, the male rat will not mate, um, more times, even if the female is still receptive. And I have to be honest now, my, the jokes in my brain want to know like, well, I don't know, maybe she's got other things to do, right? Or, um, or maybe he's, maybe, I don't know, maybe he's not very interested either, but I don't think that's the point. But then it says you put in a second receptive female and he will immediately mate again. And then if you put in a third, um, so on until he nearly dies. And that effect has been found in, Majera says, every animal studied, and this is called the Coolidge effect. So right now we're kind of thinking, why am I telling a story about rats and their mating habits, Right. Uh, but here's where he says, it says pornography's power comes from the way it tricks the man's lower brain. I think this is important. So we look at there's the different parts of the brain. The lower brain, uh, we call the, the uh, Neanderthal brain, the reptilian brain, the reactionary brain. But he said one of the drawbacks of the region is that, it, that of the lower brain is it can't tell the difference between an image and reality. And I think this like brings it into to play or focus for a lot of people. The same processes are kicked off if someone is seeing a person in reality versus an image or video on the screen. So, so then Majera says the problem with pornography is it offers um, men an unlimited number of supposedly willing females. Every time a man sees a new potential partner, even on a computer screen, it, it will activate his sex drive again. And so here's where the more, more brain stuff comes in. So we got this feel good chemical called dopamine and dopamine. I don't know. I feel like everybody's kind of talking about dopamine. It's the hip new neurotransmitting drug these days. Uh, d- dopamine plays a role in, in ADD. Um, that's a, a lack of dopamine. So 
somebody who is losing their focus, like I'm probably doing right now, is, uh, you know, their, their brain is basically seeking, where can I get a nice bump of dopamine? You know, that, and so it's like, maybe here, maybe here, maybe here. But so here's what he says about with pornography. He says, dopamine is the drug of desire. When you see something desirable, your brain pours out dopamine saying, go for it, do whatever it takes. Um, so he said, dopamine fixes your attention on that desirable object, giving you a power of concentration. Again, kind of, you know, you can put that back into that ADD model, for example. So then he says, when somebody clicks and sees a new pornographic image, here comes that lower Neanderthal brain. And it thinks that that is the real thing. And so his brain says, this is, a, this is someone he must win over. And so um, it is going to send an enormous flood of dopamine to the brain, but um, causing in a, you know, this amount of electrical energy. So the brain thinks it's doing what it's supposed to, even when it's seeing pornography. And so he says the first exposure to a new female who is a potential mate was something that only happened maybe one time to our ancestors. So the brain was really good at saying, we got to go all in to get this woman because, you know, there might not be more, you know, there's not a lot of people on the plane or the prairie or that sort of thing. So now, and I like how he said this, he said that, uh, but so the brain thinks it's a big deal when it sees this image of a woman. Um, So now the game is completely changed. It doesn't understand that these are virtual females. The brain doesn't. And so with each new image or video or whatever that the person's watching with pornography, um, it causes another flood of dopamine to, to get into the system time after time. And it's, it creates, he's kind of on this dopamine binge. And I hope this is like, uh, haven't lost anybody yet, right? People are kind of thinking, get to, get to the point, but here it is. So uh, that's why then pornography is this vicious circle, because when somebody views pornography, then they get overstimulated by dopamine and then so much so in this dopamine binge that the brain destroys some of these dopamine receptors. And so then that makes him feel depleted. And so then when he goes back to pornography with fewer dopamine receptors, this time it requires more dopamine to get the same thrill. And so, you know, that which then causes his brain to destroy more of the receptors. And so you can kind of see how it literally is changing the neurology of the brain. Um, so the more that, so then that's when people start looking at, at pornography longer and longer, or they might amp up to things that maybe are, I mean, you know, if we're being honest, like they're, I don't know, they're more, they're worse. Yeah. Right. They, they, they do, um, because they're doing that to try to have that same effect. The brain is just trying to say, okay, here's another, you know, female, I got to get her. And now it's like, give me some more dopamine. You know, it's not working. So what can I do to kind of overstimulate and give me that dopamine binge? Um, so, so, I mean, that's the part where, you know, kind of the, the role that it's playing in the brain. And then we know that the way the brain works, there's this, uh, part of the brain called the basal ganglia. It's the habit part of the brain. So walnut size thing, uh, I think it's on the top of the brainstem. Mm-hmm. And so when then something becomes habitual, now our brain, again, thinking it's doing the right thing, uh, throws it into this basal ganglia. And then, cause the brain just says, okay, so now I know whenever this guy gets hungry, angry, lonely, tired, sleepy, depressed, you know, whatever, then it calls into that basal ganglia habit center and says, do we got anything in there that can help, you know, any, any habits we can pull from. And then the brain says, you bet. And now it goes to the pornography and now we're back into this vicious cycle. So, so that's the effect on the brain. It's kind of, you know, it, I, I was going to say scary, but that's a really dramatic word, but it really does show you why it's important that we need to kind of disengage with, with pornography. And that's why, you know, I've got this online program called the path back. And I always try to say, if you even think you have a problem, you know, do something about it. It's, it's as bold as I want to be by saying, Hey, there's no need to look at pornography. There's just nothing productive about it. So, you know, even people that a lot of people that say, I don't have a problem may go weeks or months without viewing it, but then they go back to it. 
And so, you know, we don't even want that because we're, we're, we're gaming this dopamine se- uh, system We're we're, this dopamine binge is like killing off some neuroreceptors. I mean, you only got one brain, so we want to do whatever we can to protect it. Right. Yes. Yeah, another yeah. 15 minute answer. <laughs> Sorry. I <Heidi. laughs> No, that's exactly, that's exactly what I want. Okay. So you did, you did bring up your program and I, I was going to talk about this at the end, but I think this might be a good point to bring that up. Um, you know, we talk about the severity of this and the damage mm. that people are doing to their brain, but there, this can be reversed, yeah. right? Yeah, there yeah. are different things that people can do. Can you talk a little bit? Yeah. About- yeah. And, and I, yeah, I didn't even thought about this. I'm glad you asked that because I do get people in my office that, you know, they even say, uh, Hey, I've tried, I've tried to get over this or it doesn't work or yeah. yeah. Right. And then, or, and they, and basically, and I, the part that almost you know, breaks my heart is when somebody will say, okay, I just want to be able to get to the point where I can manage it. And, and I understand, and I have to meet the client there. But what I want to scream is say, you know, I, I say the majority of people I work with get to a point where they no longer need or use, but right now, and this is where I, you know, I come up with this concept. I've, I've got a podcast about it called your emotional baseline. So I feel like when you're in the trenches of addiction, your baseline of emotions is low. So, you know, you're looking at all of these things that you think you're supposed to be doing in your life and they almost seem uh, unattainable or out of reach. But the more you start to kind of build some strength around, you know, um, uh, progress around removing pornography from your life, some strength-based things, we learn to get rid of the shame. The shame is what kind of keeps us in there, uh, keeps people in this addiction cycle. But when you start to see, and and, okay, now I'm going to go off on a tangent, but so... I mean, I understand this is, I think the hard part with a lot of, of maybe people that are in positions, um, uh, like leadership positions, maybe in, in, in church or those sort of things where then they say, okay, I need this done. Like, I can't have you do this anymore, you know? And we know now there's a tremendous amount of evidence around, uh, the concept of harm reduction. So if we've got somebody that is, is just, you know, they're, they're deep in the throes of pornography addiction. And all of a sudden we're saying, Hey, I need you to never do that again and never think about it again and be completely honest. And, you know, of course they're, they're coming from this low emotional baseline. They're still in their attic brain that just says, I can't, you know, and since I can't, and now, now I'm, I'm, you know, I got somebody that is uh, I'm reporting to, and now I'm on the hook for this. Then they feel even worse and not knowing. So this is the person that doesn't know kind of what that attic brain looks like. Then we just told that person that it's like, man, Hey, here's a whole bunch of shame because you've got to get this thing perfect. And if you don't, it's going to be really bad. So the addict brain just says, man, forget it. Matter of fact, then the, when, the addict, when, when they feel bad about themselves, when that shame comes in, here we go. The brain says, hey, I know what to do with that, right? And, and we're like, no, 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 I can't. And, and I'll see people that'll go a couple of weeks, especially after they got caught or whatever. And they're like, okay, I'm, I will never do this again. But then that shame kind of creeps in or the, the feeling of um, hopelessness or that sort of thing. And then again, these are deep neuropathways that are just dug into the brain in this habit center. So we need to start, you know, I, I love the concept of um, start looking at the things that we can do or add and maybe not as much of the, you know, I mean, we want to get rid of this. We do. And I have some people that really can just say, okay, I cannot do this anymore. But then they, they just work like crazy to kind of put the good things in their lives to work on like uh, changing the relationship with their thoughts, mindfulness, um, you know, that sort of thing. But then there are other people that from time to time may still have a a relapse. And then they just feel like, see, I couldn't do it. Might as well just give up. And that's the part that, that we want to try to change the, uh, I don't know, the, the view on, we got to kind of go more strength based with this. I don't know. Was, did, was that the, I know, I think I maybe was answering a different question by now. Right. 
No, that, that was great. Okay. <laughs> that was great. Yay. Yeah. Okay. So um, shifting gears just a little bit, um, I wanted you to specifically talk about pornography in marriage relationships. Mm. And most of my listeners are women and wives and talk about um, how they can love and support their husbands who have a pornography addiction yeah. and help them as they are struggling um, when a spouse is addicted to pornography. Okay. So what challenges do you see in, in marriages when one partner has an addiction to pornography? Yeah, I think, boy, this is uh, this is where we get a little bit deep, right? Um, because I do about a year and a half or two years ago, I started doing a lot of training around the concept of betrayal trauma. So I've worked with the addicts for years and then I start doing a lot of the couples therapy because I really do feel like at the core, there's this lack of connection. So I started doing um, a lot of couples therapy and then I did start seeing what these effects were of here's a couple that there's been a disclosure and now there's this feeling of betrayal and, but they want to make things work and that's hard. And so then I, I, I started working with a group out of Utah, the Addo Recovery Center, and um, specifically a group called Bloom for Women. And, uh, and they're all about betrayal trauma. And there's, um, there's a guy there, Dr. Skinner, who's written books on overcoming pornography addiction, who also then turned the focus of his research on this concept of betrayal trauma. So now there's so much good data and resources there about what that, how we can help the spouse, how we can help the wife. Um, because I feel like the biggest challenge is yeah, now there's this disclosure and, and we look at betrayal trauma and the symptoms of betrayal trauma are right along the lines of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, because now here's this disclosure and here's somebody that had been hiding something for a long time. And now let's just say that in the case, the a wife finds out and I mean, it's normal. How does she not go back and say, wait a minute, was our, our whole marriage? Has it been, you know, a, a sham or it, what, what have I, you know, is this about me or, or how dare he, or, you know, he sat there beside me and, and heard talks about this and said, man, can you believe guys do that? I mean, there's, we just go through and now it's just, and the brain just starts running these thoughts through our head and it kind of ups these stress hormones and in, in the body. And we just, all of a sudden it just feels like fight or flight all the time. And so, so the biggest challenges I see are that part. So here's where I would just, and I, I would beg people to, when there is that disclosure, discovery, if somebody's caught, if a, hopefully if a husband feels like, okay, I got to get this under control. And then he comes and says, I, I need help with this. But at that point, I think it's really important to find a therapist that's trained in addiction recovery, betrayal trauma, specifically the betrayal trauma part, because um, I don't want to like throw horror stories out there, but I'd even thrown in my notes that, you know, I've had clients come into my office where, um, man, a, a I can think of a few now where a wife will come to me and she'll say, you know, I went to a therapist who uh, their first question was, well, you know, what, what was your role in this? Like, were you not, was there not enough intimacy? Was you and uh, it's like, Oh my gosh, here's somebody that was went through betrayal trauma. And now you're saying, you know, and by the way, it was probably your fault, right? When it, it isn't, I mean, it, it just isn't. Oh, that one kills me. Like that one. I noticed that my heart rate is raising right now. So, so I just say, get professional help from somebody who recognizes, because here's some of the things that are going to happen. Uh, let's say that the guy does get caught, or let's say he says, okay, I just got to get this off my chest. The reality is there is going to be some relief for him saying, finally, it's out there. You know, I'm not carrying around this, this baggage, you know, that sort of thing. And so it's wild because he'll be like, oh, I feel so good to then a wife who didn't have any idea or maybe had an idea, but really didn't want to believe that this was going on. 
So now all of a sudden he's just saying, man, yeah, you know, I've been, I've been doing this for years, you know, and, and the time we were on vacation and I took a phone call, I wasn't, you know, and it's like, whoa, you know, that's that disclosure piece. We want to have that kind of, and that's where I go back to, there's a lot of uh, good research around how to do disclosure. Um, you know, that's a big piece of it. There's a concept called staggered disclosure that, that we see as therapists a lot where, you know, the husband then says, okay, the wife says, okay, I want to know everything. Right. So then the husband says, okay, I'll tell you everything, but still he's like, I've never been through this before either. You know? So I'm going to tell her a lot of things. And, but he's like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm, I'm going to keep a couple things back because they're really embarrassing, you know? So then wife is maybe feels even better in that moment, but then comes back around the next day, asks a few questions. And all of a sudden he's like, okay, I should tell her this too. Right. Not realizing that he's feeling like, man, here I go. I'm unburdening again. Isn't this awesome? But she just got re-traumatized. So, and now she's saying, wait a minute, you told me last night that you were told me everything. And now you're telling me everything again. And by the way, when you told me that, you know, you were doing this, we had 10 years of you telling me you haven't been, you know, so it's just this staggered disclosure, this re-traumatizing event over and over. So, um, so I just, just say, please go get help because there is a lot of uh, good help out there. And, but, but please find someone that knows the concept of betrayal trauma. And I'm a big fan of the, for women. I mean, go to bloom for women, um, do, uh, bloomforwomen.com. They have, it's a whole community of like, um, therapists and people that have been through this and there's online programs and classes and bulletin boards and all that stuff. And it's all, you know, it's a good place to start. Um, because it, you know, here's the part where let me give some hope. I mean, I, the couple's piece, I've been doing this long enough now that I, I honestly can say that, and this is always the bizarre part, but you get a couple, there's been the betrayal trauma or the disclosure. And let's say that the guy is like, I want to make this work. I'll do whatever it takes. And in there's, you know, we have ways to kind of make that work, you know, um, I don't know, framework in place to where you can have productive conversations and disclosure and all that sort of thing. And then you get to this place where now you really do learn how to communicate. Um, um, I've got a couple of my podcasts on this concept called EFT, Emotionally Focused Therapy. It's a couples type of therapy that really is about, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share with you my heart, my, my, I'm going to be vulnerable, my emotional bid. And, and this framework allows for then a partner to turn off their fixing and judgment brain and say, okay, I want to hear from my partner. I want to I know what this experience is like for you. And I'm going to give you empathy. And then I'm going to share what, you know, my troops, what this is like for me. And that is like a, a very, very productive way to communicate. So I have couples that get through this whole betrayal trauma thing, and now they communicate better than they ever have before. And it's almost like I'm waiting for it to the moment where then somebody says, man, it's wild to think that if we wouldn't have had this traumatic event, we wouldn't now be communicating the way we are. I mean, it's, you know, I'm not saying if you, you go create a traumatic event just so that you can get to this place, you know, you can go to couples therapy without this too, you know, but I, but I just want to throw that hope out there that, it may seem intense and heavy and, and uh, full of anxiety at first, but you know, you get through the end and now you communicate better. You really are honest. We find out, you know, that the addiction is not about the wife. It's, you know, it's this guy's dealing with a bunch of stuff and he doesn't know how to deal with it. And he's got this bad pattern of uh, the way to deal with things and, and all of that can be addressed. So, and I'm looking down, yeah. did I answer, was that the, did we, did we finish somewhere close to where the question started? Yes. No, that's, okay. that's great. And I love okay. that you included that there is hope. <laughs> oh, a ton of hope. I mean, that's why I love, I, I, okay. I have to tell you, I mean, I've said this one a few times. I, I was going to say hated, but that's a bad word in my family. I did, I did not enjoy couples therapy early on in my career at all. If I had one or two couples a week, I thought, uh, you know, this is brutal. But then once I got locked in on this, uh, EFT emotionally focused therapy modality, 
it is so, I mean, it's evidence-based, it's strength-based and it's so good that now I I'm seeing 20, 25 couples a week. I love the couples therapy because it breaks my heart now to know that there are couples out there that don't communicate well, that they don't feel like they can open up to their partner. And so, yeah, there's not only, you know, there is hope, but it's like, man, hurry up and get to that hope because it's, it's a whole different relationship that most people I think never even knew they could get to, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So continuing with the, the couples therapy, I, I think one of the biggest challenges for women is that they want to love and support their husbands as they're dealing with a pornography addiction, but they struggle to, to support their husband, but to also not give the idea that they approve of the behavior. Yeah. What's the condone? Yeah. They don't want to condone the behavior, uh, yeah. hate the sin, love the sinner kind of thing. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So if I, I, so I like to kind of look at that as if I'm working, let's say I'm working with the, the woman as an individual therapy, which happens a lot too. I mean, some, the reality is, and I don't want women to then feel like, well, if he's not willing to go into therapy, then forget everything. I really want him to, but at times maybe he's, maybe he is still feeling stuck in the shame cycle or that sort of thing. And he's so embarrassed or whatever. I mean, I, again, I almost says I'm saying that want to say, yeah, but well, this will fit in. So I'm working with the woman. Um, what I'm going to start working with is no, we want, we want to get her as authentic as she can be. I want to do self-care with her. I want to raise her emotional baseline. I want her to feel empowered. I want her to know that she's worth not having to then have pornography in the home or not having, I mean, if that's not what she feels comfortable with, then it is, I want to get her to the place where she can speak that truth. And, and even if, if she's not getting back the support, that she knows that that's important to her. And, and I don't know, I, I don't know if that makes sense, but I want, I want to empower a spouse to say, I can, again, I can love you. Um, but I can also recognize what this addiction does to you. I can recognize the effects of pornography and I don't have to compromise my standards or values. Um, I mean, I, I feel like I'm going to say this and it might not sound right just because we're married. I mean, I feel like because we're married, then I want to get her to a place where she can say, this is what I need from this relationship. And it's one that does not involve pornography. I don't know. Is that, I don't know how that feels. I've never really kind of put that all out there like that before. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. 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 No, okay. no, that that's great. Um, yeah. I, I think that's just a really difficult well, and that's why I feel like, I think that's why I'm hesitating right now is because I feel like I can make everything sound like just do this, you know, but then it's like, I can get somebody for an hour and a week and feel empowered and yeah, my boundaries and then they can go home. And then their husband, you know, is like, look, I said, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do it again. Can we not talk about this? But now we go back to that in the world of betrayal trauma, the PTSD symptoms are, no, she's going to get triggered. You know, if all of a sudden she sees him put his phone away really quick, then the healthy way to work with that is she gets to say, Hey, you know, I, here's, I feel like when you put your phone away, my mind goes to you're hiding something. And instead of having a guy say, Hey, you know what? I don't, I, I told you, I'm sorry. Like, you know, I don't need you invading. It's like, no, I need that. I need her to feel empowered that she can say that because the only way to address a trigger is to be able to express it and, and have a spouse who's going to know to say, okay, I can understand where you're coming from with that. And I'm sorry if I put you in a spot where every time you see me on my phone, that that's, that's where you go. And so I'll do whatever it takes, you know? So that's a bit of helping her become or feel empowered about that. So she doesn't have to just sit with these triggers and feel like I can't do anything about it. You know, I already, I already told him that I'm upset. 
So I can't, you know, I can't talk about it anymore. No, no, we want to get to the point where we can talk about it. Um, yeah. So I think that's the part where I can make that sound easy, but then somebody can go home and then they're back in kind of the, that same environment. And now the, the whole room or the house or the area are full of triggers and they get overwhelmed and they feel like they can't talk about it. So I think that's the hard part. Yeah. 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 Okay. So along the same lines, what suggestions do you have on maintaining an intimate relationship um, when there's been a, a pornography addiction? Okay. So my first thing would be, all right, we, we got to get into couples therapy because I really, um, and I'm projecting, I'm probably going worst case here, the couples therapist in me, but I don't want to see, um, I just don't want to see the wife then all of a sudden lose her voice with regard to what her view is on, on, you know, the connection or intimacy or that sort of thing. And, and I jotted down a note here and it's a little bit of a, a big time soapbox topic for me, but so I, I feel like, um, and I'm about to do a podcast on this and I, I actually have been putting it off forever because I want it to be just perfect. I want to, I darn want to script this one. And, and it goes back to some of the work that I've done with this uh, Dr. Skinner who does all the work with betrayal trauma, but he has laid out these, these levels of intimacy. So I mean, yeah, so here's a, a preview, a heads up for a podcast I can't wait to do. But so typically we kind of go in on the, it's like this ladder view of intimacy, but we go in on the physical. So we are connected or we are attracted to someone physically. I mean, that's just, that's the way we work as humans for the most part. Um, but, but there's now kind of evidence uh, around the way intimacy works is if we look at it as a ladder on the lower part of the ladder is, is psychological intimacy, which is like hope and loyalty and trust and commitment. And then when that's in place above that is verbal intimacy. So now it's like, man, I can talk to my partner about anything and I feel connected. And above that is emotional intimacy. So now I feel like I can share my emotional um, uh, my emotions, my emotional bids, my hopes and dreams and fears. And, you know, from an emotional standpoint, and I feel like my partner hears me above that one is cognitive and intellectual intimacy, where if we're connected on all these other levels, it doesn't matter if, you know, one person is a rocket scientist and the other one is, uh, see, now I don't want to say anything judgmental about someone else's career, but not a rocket scientist. Um, we still feel connected (laughs) because we're connected on all these levels above that is spiritual intimacy. So, you know, if, if all these levels are connected, you know, then we can even have slightly different views or, or different views on spirituality. And we still, we still love each other because there's this foundation of intimacy. And on the top of that is physical intimacy. So that should be the byproduct of all these other levels. So the way to kind of get back to maintaining or, or growing or developing intimacy, I believe, is we have to kind of take that physical piece and just say, okay, I understand where we're at there. Because here's where, what happens is um, we get connected on this physical level. And then now all of a sudden we try to talk and it doesn't go well, you know, and then, but okay, but we can connect physically. So we're okay. You know, and then it's like, okay, I shared some emotions and he yelled at me and we pout for a few days, but then we connected physically. So we're okay. Right. And that's the pattern people get in. That's not a healthy pattern. Uh, We want that, those levels of intimacy kind of all connected to we can have then. So the physical intimacy then is the byproduct and that's where, so then I would say, then we got to start looking at working on the so now we look at that psychological intimacy, what's in there, trust, you know, so now we need to be able to trust each other and honesty and commitment. You know, we need to be able to talk. I mean, we need, we need to kind of go back to those basics to now change that whole relationship with intimacy. So that in physical intimacy now is, looks different, I guess. So I didn't expect to lay all that stuff out there. So, uh, but yeah, now I got to do the podcast, right? Okay. Well, we will be looking for it. Yeah. Yeah. So I hope that, did that answer it? Um, <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. 
So what kind of final thoughts do you, do you have for women who are struggling with a spouse with pornography addiction? Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I hate to, I feel like I've been, you know, all excited and all strength based stuff. And now probably I, I worry I will get sappy now, but I, you know, I get to, I get to speak a lot and I enjoy it. I love it. Whenever I speak with a group of women, uh, like enrichment nights, relief society conferences, that sort of thing. I do, I do feel, I just want to express, uh, just so much empathy on, I understand that there's, you know, that especially around pornography addiction, how women will often feel like it is about them or that they're not enough or that there's something that they lack or if they were more physically this or more whatever or and and I just that's the part I wish I could give them a, a pill or a shot or something that would kind of remove that part for a while 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 you work on the the connection because it's, it, you know, it's, it's, it's not about them. I mean, the, you know, you are a good, you're a good wife, you're a good spouse, you're a good person. And this is about his struggle, you know, his, the, I don't, I don't think I've talked about this, but I mean, back in olden days, we would say if someone had been the concept of sexualized was if there had been, you know, sexual abuse or, or, you know, that sort of thing when they were young. And, and then now we know that early exposure to pornography, and now it's like eight to 11 years old, uh, that starts to change the neuropathways of the brain. I always say that's kind of laying the wiring under the foundation. So this is something that he has dealt with for a long time. It doesn't give him excuses, but it kind of helps us understand that, you know, the, the brain, his brain is working differently. So it, a lot of times it's because, and I'm not trying to get a guy off the hook here, but it's like a lot of times it's because he doesn't feel like he's enough or he doesn't feel like he's a, a good enough for, or he doesn't feel like he's measuring up to why his brain turns to this, now, you know, deeply rooted neuropathway that says this addiction will bring him happiness, which even he knows it's not doing, you know. Um, so but but that's the part that just breaks my heart that, again, you say pr- your uh, audience is primarily female. And I just want to say, you know, get the self-care going, you know, set the boundaries. You, you are worth it. You are enough. You are you're good. You're good enough, you know. And so, and that's going to come through when you start trying to work on this connection, this new level of intimacy, and you get your relationship to this place now that you can talk and communicate. And it's just going to feel real. It's going to feel so much more connected. And you'll realize at that point, that's what I'm saying, trust me, that it wasn't about you. You know, it was about the lack of connection or, or that sort of thing. So I don't know. I hope that made sense. Um, but that's the, yeah, that's maybe final thoughts. That's perfect. Thank you. Yeah. That. Yeah. Boy, that went fast, hey. right, Heidi? It did. It did. Thank you so much. That was so much wonderful information and exactly what I was hoping to share with my audience. So thank you. No, I had a blast. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. Can you tell my listeners where they can find more from you? Yeah, there's a part where now here comes a big imposter syndrome, you know, uh, because I, you know, go to tonyoverbay.com, see my big giant bald head on the front page. I got to do something about that. Every time I look at there, I feel like it's like a I don't know, some ad for some uh, Area 51 alien kind of museum or something like that. But TonyOrbay.com, yeah, sign up to receive, uh, sign up to re- uh, sign up to, for my email list. I don't spam. I hardly ever do anything with it, which is actually a problem. Um, but because uh, I'm creating programs on, on happiness, on couples therapy, on, you know, I've got my path back program on pornography addiction. And it's a strength-based program. It is a hope-filled program to help people overcome pornography addiction and compulsive sexual behavior. So TonyOverbay.com or the Pathback is at pathbackrecovery.com. Trying to do the whole Instagram thing like the kids do. So uh, at Virtual Couch on Instagram, um, on Facebook, I've got a Tony Overbay Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist Facebook page. 
Uh, see, there's a part where I feel silly, right? It, it was like, where else? Uh, oh, also on Twitter, uh, it, somebody had virtual couch. So it's at couch virtual, but also at Tony Overbay. Now I feel like what else? Um, <laughs> come on me and Jonathan. Did you miss anything, Jonathan? Okay. Oh gosh. Yeah. The whole thing that I did. Yeah. The virtual couch, please. Uh, that's been such a, such a fun thing. And the feedback there blows my mind. And yeah, no, thank you. Yeah. So all those places, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much again. Hey, thank it, you. Heidi. Was- okay. All right. Hey, all right. We'll talk to you later. Thanks. flying past our heads and out the other end the pressures of the daily grind